Bible tonight and turn to Psalm number two, the second Psalm. The second Psalm, verses one through six, read as follows from the New King James. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And he wraps it up in verses 10 through 12 with this. Now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. 244 years ago, our forefathers brought forth on this continent a new nation. A new nation which was founded and built upon Christian principles by our Bible professing and confessing forefathers who also very openly and very publicly in their documents of establishment repeatedly declared theirs and this nation's dependence upon Almighty God and upon His sovereign providence. I don't know if you folks have ever watched the DVD, The Silencing of God but it is an incredible DVD and it has a sequel that goes with it. Talks about our founding fathers in this country, talks about their biblical convictions, what this country was built on. In my humble opinion, the Silencing of God DVD had ought to be shown in every Bible classroom and every history classroom in America at least once a year and especially at this time of year. Because two days from now is the 2020 election, as I'm sure everybody is well aware. So the question tonight's sermon seeks to answer is, if all of the politicians who were running for office this fall were here in this building tonight, what should we tell them? If all the politicians running for office this fall were here in this building tonight, what should we tell them? And I'm going to answer that question by making some biblical suggestions to us tonight based on what the Apostle Paul did in a certain similar situation. You see, the Apostle Paul was in a conversation with one who displayed all of the characteristics of a career politician. The title of tonight's lesson is God Speaks to the Politicians. If you would open up your Bibles tonight, Further to Acts, the 24th chapter, please. Acts chapter 24. 
In Acts 24, the Apostle Paul winds up defending himself against the charges of the Jews before Felix. Felix was the then Roman appointed governor of the Judean province. And again, Paul winds up defending himself before the Jews, before the governor Felix in Acts chapter 24, verses 1 through 23. And make no mistake about it, Paul was defending himself against a master politician in Felix. Felix was one who displayed all of the driving forces, motivations, characteristics, and attitudes that are so often seen and or associated with politicians of today. You see, Felix was one whom the Roman historian Tacitus represented as, quote, considering himself as licensed to commit any crime relying on the influence he possessed at court, unquote. That's from the New Unger's Bible Dictionary. Felix was one who figured he could get away with most anything because of the prominence or influence he possessed at court. If you do a little research into Felix's life, it would reveal that Felix was one who, number one, was apparently quite accustomed to pulling strings. He was quite confident in his own power to command and control. And he was not the least bit concerned with whatever level he had to stoop in order to get what he wanted. Take, for example, his wife, Drusilla. We see her in verse 24 of Acts 24. According to Brother McGarvey in his Gospel Advocate commentary on Acts, he writes the following. Drusilla, as we learn from Josephus, was a daughter of Herod Agrippa, the one who murdered the Apostle James and miserably perished soon thereafter in Acts 12. She was but six years old when her father perished, and as that was in the year 44 and her present appearance in our narrative was in 58, Drusilla is only 20. Now I realize sometimes they may be off a year or so, different commentators, but Drusilla's a young woman. She's around the age of 20. She had been given in marriage at an early age to Aziz, king of Amasa. But Felix, having seen her and become enamored of her beauty, had induced her to abandon her husband and come to him. So she was now living in an adulterous situation with Felix. History would tell us that. The scriptures don't. Felix, as we look at what little bit we've got about him here, seems to be disinterested really in the truth, disinterested in truly discovering what the truth was because it would interfere with his sinful, power-seeking, licentious lifestyle. And just as many of the career politicians of today are at least thought of as patronizing for the sake of personal gain, Felix, we see from the scripture in Acts chapter 24, had no problem patronizing for the sake of any potential, personal, political, or financial gain. We would see this right in verses 26 and 7. Look there for just a moment. Meanwhile, he, that is Felix, also hoped that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him. 
See, Felix was looking for a bribe to release Paul. That's one of the reasons the scripture tells us that, that he kept having him there. Therefore he sent for him and more often, or therefore he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. So we see in one of those verses, he's looking for a bribe from Paul. We see in the next verse that he's trying to be patronizing or pleasing to the Jews. Yes, he exhibited a lot of the characteristics of a career politician. He seems to fit at least that perceived profile rather well and in a number of ways. And so, if all of our politicians were here this evening, what might we say to them? I believe that the divinely inspired outline that we have right here from the Apostle Paul would suit us very well. What the Apostle Paul had to say to Felix and what he discussed with him would serve us very well as an outline. Let us begin in Acts chapter 24, in verse 24. After some days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. First and foremost in our outline that we see in Scripture, I would preach to our modern-day politicians, if they were here, the need for faith in Jesus Christ, the need for the faith in Christ, if we would not be found as a nation fighting against God. That is a war nobody can win. No nation can win a fight against God. No nation can. Nobody, no nation, no power on earth, below the earth or above the earth, has the ability or power to win a fight against God. And so I would stress to them, the one faith in Christ Jesus, that, that this is what everybody needs the faith in Christ that keeps his word in order to thrive and survive both here and hereafter, Matthew 7, 21 through 28. The one faith in Christ that honors and obeys him as Lord, Luke 6, 46 through 49. I would stress to them the need in our country for this faith in Christ, just as, just as Paul did Felix that humbly submits to his authority in all things because Jesus Christ holds all authority, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Why does he hold all authority? Because God, according to Ephesians 1, 20 and 22, raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in that which is to come and put all things under his feet, including all politicians, all presidents, kings, jurors, governors. Jesus has all authority. I want for us to consider from the Old Testament God's eternal power and authority that ought to reveal to everybody, including our politicians, the fact that God is not a God you want to go to war against. Turn to me to Psalm 89. God is not a God that you want to be fighting constantly. Psalm 89, let us begin in verse 5 and look at the power of this God, why we need to all keep that one faith in Jesus. 
why we need to kiss the sun, Psalm 2. Psalm 89, beginning of verse 5. And the heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the saints. For who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints, to be held in reverence by all those around him. And we talked about that a little this morning. O Lord God of hosts, who's mighty like you? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You've broken Rahab in pieces as one who is slain. You've scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world in all its fullness. You have founded them. Talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Last week. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon rejoice in your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High is your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. They walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. That's where our nation needs to be. In your name they rejoice all day long, and in your righteousness they are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength, and in your favor our horn is exalted, for our shield belongs to the Lord, and our King to the Holy One of Israel. Please notice verses 14 and 16. In verses 14 and 16, you will see the word righteousness. That is the first facet of that one faith, which Acts 24 and verse 25 tells us that Paul addressed with Felix and Drusilla. For it says there in Acts 24, 25, now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Item number one that I would therefore, or, or the second item, but the first part of the faith in Christ that needs to be discussed with our politicians is the need for righteousness in our nation. And how we as a people who are pursuing righteousness must therefore hate every evil thing that our righteous Heavenly Father does. If we're going to be righteous like God, if we're going to be righteous as a nation, the only way we can do that is to hate the evil that God hates. Now, as we talk about that, righteousness can be defined as believing or trusting enough in God, like Abraham did, according to Romans chapter 4, 16 through 25, to obey his instructions, like the faithful in Hebrews 11 did and were commended for it. Even when the world around you is consumed with the pursuit of evil, like they were in Noah's day, according to Genesis chapter 6. Righteousness is believing and trusting in God enough to obey his instructions even when the world around you is consumed with the pursuit of evil. And so some might say, okay, well, if we're going to tell them that they need to be righteous, how do we define it? Where do we find out where righteousness comes from? One verse answers that question very easily, very simply, in language so simple a child can understand it, and that is Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 25. Listen to this. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all these commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. 
It will be righteousness for us if we obey God. Pretty simple, isn't it? Not hard to understand. Deuteronomy 6, verse 25. Proverbs 1, 1 through 7 reiterates to us that it is God's word that is the source of righteousness. And it's interesting. The word righteousness is used in the Bible 315 times in the New King James Version. 23 of them in the book of Proverbs. It's quite a good percentage. 23 times we see the word righteousness in the book of Proverbs. And I'm going to give you some examples. Don't bother to turn there because I'm just going to read them fast. But you see if this isn't something the politicians in our country could use. Listen to these verses. Proverbs 10 and verse 2. Treasures of wickedness profit nothing, but righteousness delivers from death. Proverbs 11, 4 through 6. Right, riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless will direct his way aright, but the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. The righteous of the upright will deliver them, the righteousness of the upright will deliver them, but the unfaithful will be caught by their lust. He goes on later in Proverbs 11, verses 18 and 19 to say this, the wicked man does deceptive work, but he who sows righteousness will have a sure reward. Is that true? It's as true as the day it was written. As righteousness leads to life, so he who pursues evil pursues it to his own death. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Knowing what we talked about with Felix, do you suppose Felix is getting a little nervous about this point in time? As, God is, as, as Paul is discussing righteousness with him. Let me continue with a few more out of Proverbs. Proverbs 12, 28. And the way of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. Proverbs 13, 16, righteousness guards him whose way is blameless, but wickedness overthrows the sinner. Try this one and consider our national situation. Proverbs 16 and verse 8, better is a little with righteousness than vast revenues without justice. Tell me again that today's politicians don't need the godly wisdom and instruction, especially in righteousness that God put in the book of Proverbs. And as I'm sure that most all of you know, and probably you've thought of the verse already as well in Proverbs, it's not just talking about individuals, talking about an entire nation. Proverbs 14 and verse 34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And not only is righteousness defined by loving what God loves and subsequently doing what God says, but conversely, it is defined by hating what God hates and avoiding such at all cost. Psalm 97.10, Proverbs 8.13, and Amos 5 and verse 15 all tell us that we need to hate what God hates. That's what loving God means, is hating what God hates. One of the primary things that God hates, according to Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, is the shedding of innocent blood. When I read the phrase in Proverbs 6, 17, hands that shed innocent blood, as one of the things that God abhors, 
I would certainly point out to today's politicians, point blank from the Word of God, the eternal truth that according to Psalm 127 in verse 3, Jeremiah 1.5, Galatians 1.15, and especially Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16, that from the very moment of conception, a baby in the womb is a baby indeed in the eyes of Almighty God, period. A precious and priceless soul and creation of God's own making, which those who shed its precious blood will pay an awful and horrific price for so doing, Genesis 9, 5 and 6, and Revelation 21, 8. That brings us to the second facet of the one faith, which Acts 24 and verse 25 tells us that Paul additionally addressed with Felix and Drusilla. You'll find that after righteousness, it says Paul spoke to them about self-control. Therefore, if I were addressing our politicians today using this outline, that would be the next topic. The need for more self-control in our nation. How do you, how do you contemplate and keep track of all the lack of self-control in our nation? In our town. You can't, only God himself can, can begin to, 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 to understand the almost seemingly infinite amount of no self-control that there is in our nation. There is infinitely more of the bottomless and never satisfied sin of selfishness and lack of any sort of self-control in our land than can ever be documented by any group of people and anyone other than Almighty God himself. It just can't be. There's such a lack of self-control in so many areas. Look at 2 Timothy 3. I'm going to talk about a lack of self-control and the need for preaching to our national leaders on it. 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 4. Look at what it says. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. Verse 2, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. You want to talk about something that needs to be addressed. It is the lack of self-control. Each one doing what seems right in their own eyes, just like in the days of the judges, chapter 21 and verse 25, but which will in the end only and ultimately lead to their eternal death and destruction. Just like Proverbs 14, 20, uh, 14, 12, and 16, 25 tell us, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it's the way of death. 
And so on that topic, I would preach to those same politicians that so-called same-sex marriage is a complete, utter, and abominable contradiction in terms in the eyes of God. That God the Creator's plan right from the very beginning was one man and one woman to be united for life, Genesis 2, 18 through 25. And you know, when it comes to that, it's the very thing that Jesus himself taught, preached, upheld and defended in Matthew 19, 1 through 9, just like the divinely inspired writers of the New Testament did in Hebrews 13, 4 and other places. We talk about this, I would also let them know that therefore same-sex marriage is nowhere acceptable, excusable, or even forgivable for as long as it is impenitently practiced and indulged in. Nowhere. And in fact, no matter what any court, what Congress, or what any national leader or other God-defying or Bible-contradicting or rejecting group may claim, it's a free will choice. We know that. People will say, well, God made me this way. No, God didn't. You made the choice. How do we know that? Do we know that? How do we know that? I'll tell you how we know that. We know that from the Bible. We know from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, that this particular sin, just like so many other sins, can be stopped if people choose to stop it because, what does he say in verse 11? And such were some of you, such were some of you, but you were washed. What does that mean? That means that they used to be all of these types of sins, including that one, these types of sinners, but when they, when they came to Jesus, when they came to realize there was a better way, and they were washed of their, they repented and they turned to God, and they were washed of their sins, and when they were washed, they started making the right choices and chose to obey God, rather than make those choices that were against God. They began to make those choices to hate evil like God did. That brings us to the third and final facet of the faith. Which Acts 24 and verse 25 says the, Paul, says the Apostle Paul discussed with Felix and Drusilla. If you check your Bibles in Acts 24 and verse 25, the final point of that outline was the judgment to come. So subsequently, the next thing that I would discuss using this outline in Acts 24 with today's politicians running for office this year, if they were here, is the judgment to come. Brethren, the judgment day is going to come. Now, people can deny God exists. People can go to all of these lengths not to explore his word. They can scream and fight and claim that there is no eternity and judgment day is not coming, but it's not going to change even the smallest. Judgment day is going to come. We're all going to have to give an account of ourselves to God. That's what the scripture says. And if that is not true, then Jesus was a complete fraud, and we know that his being raised from the dead proved that he was the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. The Word became flesh. And so judgment day is going to come. I would like to discuss with them the judgment to come. 
where Jesus repeatedly emphasized that those who refused to hear and obey his words while they were here on earth would on that day be cast into the lake of fire, this darkness, this outer darkness where God is not, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We see that in Matthew 22, verses 1 through 13 and other places. I would like to discuss with them the judgment to come. When those who cause others to sin, and I want to take just a minute to, to talk about that. When you tell somebody or you create laws that put across to somebody that what they're doing is okay, when what they're doing is sin, then you are supporting that sin. You are supporting their journey down a very bad road. So, speaking to them about the judgment to come, when those who cause others to sin will also be cast into that unquenchable lake of fire right along with them, according to Mark 9, verses 42 through 48 and Romans 1, 18 through 32, when all of us are judged on that day, great and small, rich and poor, all of us alike, Revelation 20, 11 through 15, based on exactly what this book says, John 12, 48 through 50. Did you get all that? I would discuss with them the judgment to come, wherein those who cause others to sin by promoting their sin will also share their fate. I'll simplify that sentence without the references. I would discuss with them the judgment to come when God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil, Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 14. You know, that text ought to be really sobering. It ought to be really sobering if down, not downright frightening to us all, not just the unsaved. You know why? When we talk about that that judgment and, and how God will bring every work into judgment, Ecclesiastes 12, 14. You know why that ought to be really scary to all of us? Because like the Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4, 17 and 18, listen to this. The time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? That is an incredible, I wish I had about an hour to preach on, on that, those two verses. Two things I'll point out in about 60 seconds rather than 60 minutes, though, are this. Did you notice he said, if judgment begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel? That one verse right there tells us what? that if you don't obey the gospel, you're not part of the church, which is verified in other places, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 for one of them. If it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who are not amongst the saved or do not obey the gospel or not part of the church? That's the implication, okay? And the second thing that I would point out about that is if the righteous one is scarcely saved, you know, it took Jesus' blood to cleanse our sins. And, and it's hard for some Christians to make it all the way to Judgment Day because of the pull of the world and all that. If we're scarcely saved, 
What's Judgment Day going to be like for those who threw Jesus away? And so finally, in our text of Acts 24 and verse 25, we read these words. Felix was afraid. <laughs> Can you blame him? <laughs> Felix was afraid. Just as any self-serving person who hears the truth about what God has to say on these subjects ought to be. But in his fear, he didn't turn to God. He talked to Paul a lot because he's looking for a bribe, as we've already read. I'd like to give us a couple of quick excerpts from Psalm 9 that should suffice to get the attention of even the stoutest of hearts, of not just our politicians, local, national, but everybody, like Felix, need to hear about the faith in Christ, God's righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Turn to me to Psalm 9. Let's look at just a few excerpts. Psalm 9. If you're already there, I'll be there in a minute. Beginning at verse 7. But the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. Yes, judgment is coming. He shall judge the world in righteousness. See, this ties together everything we've talked about. And he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. Verse 15, moving up a little. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they made, in the net which they hid, their own foot is caught. The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Verse 17. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Is that a message? that today's politicians who are going to lead this country need to hear? Absolutely. And the nations that forget God. And finally, verses 19 and 20. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. I love that text. It goes right back to what Psalm 2 said that we read at the very beginning. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. God, help them to understand that you and you alone are sovereign, that you and you alone are God, that they do not have the right nor the power nor the authority to go against you. They don't, and they never will. And then, of course, there is the verse for the ages, the verse for the ages for all of those once proud and faithful people of God in, in any generation who in their God-given prosperity, when they, when they were once a proud people of God and, and they get to this point where they're full of prosperity, 
and they turn their backs upon his most holy faith and his words of righteousness by surrendering their moral self-control to Satan's self-serving compass, ensuring their eternal destruction in the end if they do not immediately repent. That, that verse of verses, you know which one it is, right? Speaking on a national level, 2 uh, Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14 says, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Isn't God awesome? No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter how much you denied him, God said, like, like the father waiting for the prodigal son, if you just come home to me, our God is so awesome. If you'll just come back to me. However, 2 Chronicles 7 goes on a few verses later in verses 19 and 20 to say this. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot and cast out of my sight. Yes, tonight, if all of the politicians who were running for office and looking to be elected this Tuesday were here. These are the things I'd want to tell them. These are things right straight out of the divinely inspired outline of the Apostle Paul as he spoke to Felix. But they're not here, obviously. The only ones here and hearing my voice live stream are most likely a few Christians, a few faithful people of God who will be voting this coming Tuesday. So I'm going to leave you with this. May the word of the living God guide your hearts, your minds, and your hands in Christ Jesus our Lord as you vote this coming Tuesday. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 17. Our message tonight has not been one that has necessarily spoken about plan of salvation, hasn't spoken of it really at all. But if there's somebody here tonight who would like to become a Christian, become part of the family of God. You've heard about Jesus. You believe he's the son of the living God. You're willing to repent and turn to God and change your life to confess Jesus as Lord and to be baptized, born again of the water and the spirit, to clothe yourself with Christ as we talked about this morning from Galatians 3, 26 and 7. We'd love to have you do that tonight. Church would love to welcome a new baby into the family. That's always an awesome thing. But maybe you're somebody who's already done that. You just need the prayers of the church for strength. Whatever you need may be tonight. We're here as God's people, ready to help you in whatever way that you need help. If you have a need, will you come to the front as we stand and sing?